This is The Political Scene, and I'm David Remnick. Masha Gessen is a staff writer at The New Yorker, the author of many books on Russia and the nature of autocracy. Masha, who identifies as trans, is also a leading figure in covering LGBT rights. The other morning, I wrote Masha Gessen an email asking to talk about the arguments taking place all over, from the New York Times to Netflix to the political stage, about how we talk about trans issues. They wrote back immediately and with such insight that I quickly asked Masha to come join us here. Masha, to hear many Republicans right now, you'd think that LGBTQ rights are somehow as big a threat as the new Cold War or nuclear war. I just spoke with a Democratic state senator in Nebraska, and she's fighting to block a bill that would withhold gender-affirming care from trans kids. And she said to me that the Republicans in her legislature aren't really that worked up about trans rights, but that these bills are designed to get airtime on Fox News and are a kind of directive from the national party. And and that seems like a convenient argument for a Democrat to make in a certain way that doesn't want to make too many enemies with her Republicans. What is the motivation for DeSantis, for Trump, for the Republican Party to make this issue into something so enormous? I think I probably agree with the state senator a little bit in the sense that all of these bills are about signaling. And what they're signaling is the essence of past-oriented politics. And it's a really convenient signal because some of the most recent, most clear, and most rapid social change concerns LGBT rights in general and trans rights and trans visibility in particular. All the autocratic po- politics that we see around the world right now are past-oriented politics. It's it's Putin sort of returning the great Russia. And note that Putin's war in Ukraine goes hand-in-hand hand with extreme anti-LGBT rhetoric. I mean, in his last speech, he took time to, to assert that God is male and that the crazy Europeans and the and the Nazi Ukrainians are trying to make God gender fluid. I'm not kidding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and more simply, men are men and women are women, and that's the end of the story, right? And 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 that simplicity, right? Women are women, men are men. Um, there's social and financial stability. There is where relevant. There's whiteness. There's a comfortable and predictable future. That's a message that says we are going to return you to a time when you were comfortable, when things weren't scary, when things didn't make you uncomfortable, when you didn't fear that your kid was going to come home from school and tell you that they're trans. Andrew Solomon has written beautifully about this, about the very specific disconnect and anxiety connected with having children whose identity is completely different from yours. And I think how that's... Upset, how upsetting that is to so many people who are... Who the, the appeal of is that this wouldn't happen, is what you mean. Right. It's, it's, it's promising to take that fear away, promising to take that anxiety away is, is truly powerful. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a lot of our listeners, maybe almost all of them at this point, because we're in the middle of the, in the story of the 
war in Ukraine, know you, at least recently, as somebody who's covering that and covering that so magnificently. Thank but you. But as I more than once reminded you, the first time I ever met you or even saw you was, I think, in 1990, and you were leading or part of a a gay rights demonstration in Moscow. You're, you're a citizen both of Russia and the United States, and this has been, been a big part of your life. I, I, I thought maybe we'd go back even farther in time and for you to tell me about your own journey about gender, about sexuality, and why this has become such a big part of your life as well as your journalism and your writing. So um, professionally, I started out in gay and lesbian journalism, as it was known at the time, uh, in the mid-'80s. So obviously, uh, because at the time it was obvious that if somebody was doing gay and lesbian journalism, they were at least queer. Um, But, you know, growing up, I was most definitely trans-identified, except I didn't have words for it. We're talking how old then? Five, six. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, at the age of five, going to sleep in my detsky sat, the, the Russian, yeah. <laughs> Russian, Russian preschool, and hoping that I would wake up a boy. And uh, I had people address me uh, by a boy's name. My, my parents, fortunately, were incredibly game. Um, I remember that in the late 70s, so I would have been like 10 or 11 years old, they read in a Polish magazine about trans... Uh, transsexual at that point surgery and told me about it. And I said, oh, I'm going to have an operation when I grow up. And they said, that's fine. And then I went through puberty and I could no longer live as a boy so clearly. And then I was a lesbian for many, many years um, or more likely queer. But I've always thought of myself as having more of a sort of gender identity than, than a sexual orientation. What does that mean? It means that my, you know, we're not supposed to talk like this in the 80s and 90s. In the 80s and 90s, we were supposed to be very clear about sexual orientation being separate from gender. uh, And that if you were a lesbian, that didn't mean you wanted to be a man. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've always been attracted to both men and women. But I've always been very clearly gender nonconforming. Now, one of the things that became part of uh, a certain kind of education after a while and at a certain period of time was the following sentence, gender is a construct. And I think most people over the centuries thought of gender as given to you by biology. What is the origins of the notion of gender as a construct? Actually... Recently, uh, I think Judith Butler, who did a lot to popularize that idea and the idea of gender as performance, which I think is even more relevant to to what we're talking about, she said fairly recently, or I'm sorry, they said fairly recently in an interview that... Um, I think it would be warming for some, some listeners to know that you made this mistake. <laughs> we're leaving it in. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so they said that gender is imitation without an original. And I think that's that's a beautiful description, not only of how gender operates, but also why we have so much trouble when we do journalism, especially about transgender issues. Mm-hmm. What does it mean that it has no original? Some would say, well, of course there's an original. There's Adam and there's Eve. 
you know, the simple answer would be, and a lot of standard journalism will give the, this answer, which is that's different. That's sex, right? It's not so different. Sex is also not so clear-cut. Um, there are biological determinants of sex that vary from, from person to person, and there's there are expectations of gender which change with time, both time, you know, historical time and, and personal time. Mm. Right? Um, one of the best quotes I've heard from somebody who, who, who studies uh, gender and actually medical intervention was, look, if the gender of a five-year-old girl and a 50-year-old woman is not the same. Uh, oh, right. You're right, right? Like, I mean, we, we think of these things as, as stable and knowable, but they're not. They're, they're actually fluid by definition, in, and in our lived experience, they're fluid. I, I think some people would say, you know, homosexuality is something that we have known about for many, many centuries. It's, it's in our literature. It's in history books. But that somehow, generationally, trans people, with very, very rare and notable exceptions— Renee Richards, the tennis player, Jan Morris, the writer. And it seemed extraordinarily exceptional. And then suddenly it becomes part of our modern lives. How do you mark that historically and socially? You know, so first I want to challenge it a little bit. Sure. There's a lot of documentation uh, of people living as the opposite sex through, in various historical periods. And in fact, there's there's a lot of art depicting, especially you know, the young woman who dresses as a man and mm-hmm. goes to war, um, is is a plot that we see in so many different cultures. Is a woman who lives her life, uh, a, a person assigned female at birth in our modern language, who lives their entire life as a man, marries a woman, and is discovered to have uh, unexpected genitalia. Uh, at after death, you know, is that a transgender person? So part of it is not dissimilar to homosexuality, which which was something that existed but wasn't talked about, and then all of a sudden was out in the open in this country in in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, and it's also different. And this and this is where um, we start getting into so much trouble with, 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 with journalistic coverage, right? Because it is plainly knowable that so many more people, especially young people, are identifying as transgender than were even 10 years ago, even five years ago. The easiest way to try to wrap your mind around it is to pretend that, tra- that being transgender is, again, something stable, Right, that being transgender today is exactly the same thing as being transgender was 20 years ago. And that we can, say, distinguish it from being homosexual. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't. Being transgender today is different from, from being transgender 20 years ago. Being transgender in a society that understands that some people are transgender is fundamentally different. What's the most important thing right now? What, what, what are the issues when it comes to trans people that are urgent and crucially important? Well, I think the, the bills around the country are absolutely um, crucially important. And part of what 
makes me think that is that I have seen, you know, not just in Russia, but uh, say in Hungary uh, and in Poland, mm-hmm. the attacks on anti uh, on the attacks on LGBT people and attacks on what they call gender ideology, which is what. Which is so gender ideology is the specter of a totalitarian regime that will enforce gender fluidity, best as I can interpret it. But gender ideology is a term that that floats around. This, is, know, this, is, this is the creation of a hysteria, um, right? But I, I mean, but this is a term that appears in uh, you know in Brazil and in in Hungary and in Russia. Russia. It is it is heavily weaponized by autocrats. And I don't know if you remember um, some years ago, there was footage of Judith Butler being attacked, I think, at an airport in Brazil. They were attacked by some person. Mm-hmm. There was some protest with um, placards saying, you know, down with your gender ideology. That was actually, I think, the first time I heard I heard the term. You speak of Brazil, Russia, Hungary, and, and absolutely correct, but let's move closer to home. At CPAC um, meeting last week, Michael Knowles from the Daily Wire made a speech calling for the, and I quote, eradication, eradication of what he called transgenderism. And he then had to clarify that it was not a call to eradicate trans people as such, but an ideology of transgenderism. Is there any distinction? No, of course there's no distinction. And that's that's why I started with Russia, because I remember back when I was stupid about 12 years ago, uh, <laughs> seeing that uh, there was some regional bill to outlaw LGBT propaganda and thinking it was ridiculous and wouldn't apply to me. And this then two is why years you left later, Russia. And two years later, I was on the run from Russia because they were actually coming after my kids. So, you know, the fact, recall, the fact that somebody in the legislature made specific mention of you. Correct. What was tell tell us about that? It was uh, it was it was um, a politician named Vitaly Milonov who was at the forefront of fighting the LGBT scourge, who said that all Americans want to do <laughs> is adopt Russian orphans and raise them in perverted families like Masha Gessens, uh, which was basically a sign to me that I had to get my adopted son out of the country, which also meant I had to leave the country. So. Um, you know, when I see that transgender care for first for kids, then for adults is likely to become is already illegal in some states and for adults is likely to become illegal in some states. I know that, you know, my testosterone in New York is probably not as safe as I think it is. <laughs> Last week both Mississippi and Tennessee banned gender affirming health care for trans youth. All of them. So when we talk about gender-affirming care, let's be clear, what specifically are we talking about, there or anywhere? Right. So um, so this is actually another topic where I think that uh, criticism of the journalism is misguided because some of the criticism of the journalism has been, don't question standards of care. Um, well, it is our job as journalists to question standards of care. Journalists should absolutely question standards of care. And there's some legitimate controversy about standards of care for for trans youth. Uh, what's completely uncontroversial is social transition. By is, social transition, you mean? I mean living as the gender that the person identifies as. Mm-hmm. 
fully changing name, you know, changing pronouns, mm-hmm. etc. But what's not terribly controversial is hormone treatment in young people who have gone through puberty. And what is somewhat controversial is puberty blockers, which are in many places the standard of care, which, you know, puberty blockers are exactly what they sound like. They delay puberty. Uh, and then the idea is that if, uh, and, and certainly people's experiences, that if they don't go through the, the puberty of the sex with which they don't identify, they don't grow breasts or they don't, uh, uh, they don't grow hair and testicles, then it will be much easier to transition when they start receiving uh, hormone treatment. There are some studies that point to potential risks of long-term, right, more than a year or so, use of puberty blockers. Um, that is absolutely illegitimate topic of discussion. But of course, it's become very, very difficult to cover because uh, there are you know, bills in Texas, Mississippi, Florida, Arkansas, uh, and other states that lump all of these treatments in the same bucket and seek to outlaw or have already outlawed. Where, where does surgery come in? Um, surgery is very, very rarely something that young people, uh, people under 18 have. Because it seems to me that when I listen to the rhetoric of the right, you would think that surgery on very young people, without parents knowing it, is somehow sweeping the country. As far as I know, not a thing. I'm talking with The New Yorker's Masha Gessen. They've written for years about LGBTQ issues, and we're going to continue in a moment wrestling with trans coverage in the media, Dave Chappelle's trans jokes, and much more. This is The New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. I'm talking today with Masha Gessen, who's been contributing to The New Yorker since 2014 and has been a staff writer since 2017. Alongside their coverage of Russia and the war in Ukraine and American politics, Masha has written in-depth on LGBTQ issues. We spoke earlier in the program about why the American right has fastened onto gender issues with such ferocity. Politicians have introduced bills all over the country that would have drastic effects on trans children and adults. But apart from the politics, it also seems to me that many supporters of trans people, people of all kinds, often have a difficult time talking about and understanding issues of trans identity. And so I wanted to hear from Masha Gessen on that as well. Masha, we've seen any number of instances, whether it's a tumult at the New York Times about its coverage or at Netflix about Dave Chappelle and his comedy and the controversy that's caused and the upset that that caused and the reaction back and forth. How would you kind of approach the talking about the conversation about trans people? What, what is the state of it? Where are we? Why is it so fraught and difficult and so often painful? I think it's so, it's so painful and so fraught because it is very difficult in discussing transness, in covering transness, to avoid engaging with the argument about whether trans people actually exist or have the right to exist. That is deeply painful to trans people 
uh, and I would imagine to people who love trans people, right? Um, that's actually something that should be off limits, right? But it's, it is very hard uh, because, um, for example, in Emily Bazelon's excellent piece in the New York Times Magazine uh, last summer about uh, the, uh, the battle over transgender treatment, there's a quote uh, from Andrew Sullivan, the conservative gay journalist, who says, well, maybe, you know, these people would have been gay if they hadn't, maybe implying they're really gay, right? And they're not really transgender. And that really clearly veers into the territory of saying, you know, these people don't exist. They're not who they say they are. So you're saying that Emily Bazelon should not have included that remark from Sullivan. I, I think it was a paraphrase of Sullivan rather than a quotation. I wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that piece would have been even better without that quote, right? I think that um, that you can, you know, we're as journalists, we're not under obligation to quote every single view on an issue, and I think we have the right to exclude the view that somebody is not who they who they say they are. I, th- I think it's even true, Masha. Correct me if I'm wrong. That even you, as a trans person, writing about trans issues have not escaped. Oh yeah, getting I, whacked across the head. I, I I believe I'm right. No, absolutely yes. I was I was canceled by trans Twitter once. What what uh, happened? So, and this is another reason why it's so difficult. Different trans people have vastly different experiences of being tra- trans. You know, I had a whole life as as a, as a female person. Not only that, I carried a pregnancy to term and gave birth and breastfed. Um, and then, you know, years later, cut off those breasts and am enjoying the effects of that. I didn't start my transition until the age of 50. And I have talked about it as a series of choices that I've made. For a lot of people, and this was, you know, this is also true uh, when we talk about sexuality. For a lot of people, it really, truly never feels like a choice. It, it feels like an existential issue. They feel like there's a single true self. And that single true self narrative kind of dominates the trans side of the controversy around uh, coverage of trans issues. I think wrongly so. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's one way of living and experiencing life as a, as a trans person. I'm really concerned about a lot of the criticism of uh, the coverage of trans issues because even though I'm very unhappy with a lot of the coverage, I think that criticizing it on the grounds that there's too much of it is wrong and kind of dangerous, right? Uh, Because the argument generally goes, there's so few trans people, why are you obsessed with them? Well, you know, I'm old enough to have been an AIDS journalist. And I remember when the New York Times wasn't covering AIDS because there were so few people affected by it. That's a crazy reason not to cover something. Trans issues are absolutely newsworthy because it's new, right? In the sense that the prevalence of people who identify as trans is new, it's literally news. Republicans are making political hay about it. That's news. And most interestingly, and this is where we get into why it's so difficult, being trans is unlike anything else. Right? Uh, being trans is not a medical condition, but it marries you for life to the medical system. It almost always, not always, involves some kind of medical intervention. You know, How do we think about the way that um, that people make decisions. Both sides of the debate are really interested in the issue of regret and look at regret 
and detransition as a measure of the rightness or wrongness of particular approaches to trans treatment, right? I'm, I hate using the word treatment. I'm always stumbling over it because it's not actually treatment, but it is treatment, mm-hmm. right? But it's not a medical condition. One side, especially the opponents of childhood uh, medical intervention for trans-identified kids, say that many of them go on to have regrets and detransition. Proponents say, no, very few of them have regret. I say, wait a second, <laughs> you know, um, Kids and their parents, uh, especially teenagers, make a huge number of decisions that have lifelong implications and that are likely to result in regret. For example? For example, um, taking out huge student loans to go to college and being saddled with them for life. Uh, For example, joining ROTC and becoming part of the military for life. But is that comparable to a physical decision? For example, starting to take antidepressants uh, or other medical treatments. I mean, you know, I I teach college. Mm. Fully half of my students are on some kind of lifelong medical treatment that either their parents or they and their parents together decided to commit to when they were kids or teenagers, right? Not that different. Not the same, right? And this is where uh, coverage is so difficult because a lot of trans people being understandably offended or hurt by some comparison, say, don't compare. But the only way we as humans have uh, make meaning is we compare one thing to another and say, okay, it's like this in some ways and unlike it in, so- in other ways. But back to the issue of regret, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could think of transition as a lifelong option? Some people transition more than once. Some people transition, you know, from female to male, and then transition from male to female, and then maybe transition again. And that doesn't tell us that their first transition was wrong. Any more than, you know, my living as a woman and being pregnant and having children was wrong, although I'm sure I would also have lived a very happy life had I had the chance to transition at 20. We talked about the New York Times. The Atlantic also sparked a lot of backlash in 2018 for a cover article about detransitioning. Has the amount of coverage that detransitioning received in the media, has that amount of that been skewed? Has that altered your perception of how the press is covering this in general? Yeah, I think that, I think there's way too much focus on detransitioning. And, you know, what I think that's about, in part, there's this it's almost it's it's what like it's what Susan Sontag called the sex exception, except it's the gender exception. We normalize regret in all other areas of life. We do things and then we regret them. You know, we have children and regret regret it all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's perfectly normal. Speak for yourself. <laughs> but um, he quickly added. <laughs> but um, but we think that something so catastrophic happens to a person who transitions. Mm-hmm. It's like this book a few years ago by Abigail Schreier called um, Irreversible Damage, right? This idea that you do something to yourself that you will never gain back. Uh, you know, and in particular, she was talking about girls making the choice to, to forfeit being able to bear children. Um, which, yes, a big thing, but also not a unique thing, not, 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 a, you know, not a life-ruining thing necessarily. Um, but we do talk about it 
uh, is that of all the losses a person can have in their life, this is this is one that is just you know that we can't make up for. How much do you care about eruptions of of conversation and Twitter furor when it comes to J.K. Rowling or Dave Chappelle? Um, are these important moments in in the development of the way we talk about uh, trans people? Uh, I'm going to get myself into so much trouble. Um, you know, I... Um, I mean, Twitter Fuhrer is not generally a useful tool for sort of cultural sense-making. Dave Chappelle, to my mind, is absolutely fascinating. Um, I've watched, I think, all or most of his trans jokes recently because I needed to discuss them with somebody. And I found them brilliant and radical. The way, for example, he talks about bathroom bills is quite incredible. So basically, the point that I heard him making was that he would rather share the bathroom with a man with a vagina than a woman with a penis. That is a completely next-level, trans-accepting kind of humor. And then I was speaking to a very prominent trans woman writer who was so upset that I liked the Dave Chappelle special because all she heard him say was that her vagina was an impossible burger. That's a quote. And, you know, I can understand that. I mean, I thought that was funny. <laughs> but I also didn't take it personally. Right. right. Um, you know, if we could sit down and discuss these things, especially with Dave Chappelle, I think that would move the conversation forward. Masha, do you think the left generally does a good job of speaking on trans issues in a way that a broader public can understand? We've been talking about CPAC, we've been talking about the Republican Party, Ron DeSantis, Trump, and the rest. What about the other side of things, with the the Democratic Party dialogue, broadly speaking, about, about these issues? You know, I want to be generous about this because... Why? Well, because I want to acknowledge the the difficult situation that we're in. Uh, I'm very frustrated with both um, LGBT activist organizations uh, and uh, and other you know, prominent advocacy organizations with the very reductive ways uh, in which in which they frame trans issues, like for example, framing access to gender-affirming care for trans youth as a question of suicide or, or, and survival. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, th there's an extremely high rate of suicide risk among trans people in general. But gender-affirming care doesn't actually seem to be the answer to, to the suicide risk, right? Maybe more social acceptance is the answer. I think that in general the Democratic Party follows the lead of advocacy organizations, which is actually good, right? It's the, <laughs> the blame is with the advocacy organizations. But it's very hard to blame the advocacy organizations for not being complex and nuanced in their rhetoric when the right is on such a rampage. So, so that's why I want to be generous. We've been talking about the New York Times, but what do you hope for our own publication about as we move forward and we 
write about this, grapple with this, think about this. Um, what should we be doing and how do we get better? So I think one thing that I'm really happy to to have been able to do is just write about trans people um, is though there's nothing unusual about trans the transness people. transness is almost well, incidental to what you're writing. Exactly. I guess we have we we have to wade into this controversy which um which does exist i mean some of the criticism um of trans coverage in the times and elsewhere has said oh it's a manufactured culture war well of course all all culture wars are, are manufactured but this one is happening mm-hmm. right so so we have to figure out a way to to cover it i think in a complicated way masha gessen thank you so much thank you You can read all of Masha Gessen's reporting on Ukraine, and Russia, and much more at NewYorker.com.